gap of what you know you should do and what you do is something we struggle with at all ages. It just happens to be that this place thing is such a big decision that if you get that decision right for a stage that you're in, everything becomes easier. If it's the wrong one, everything's harder. And that's why this one, more than other decisions, is really worth the time and investment to get it right. with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome to another episode of At Home on Air, conversations that matter for the experiences of later life. My name is Susie Stadler. I'm an architect and also the executive director of At Home with Growing Older. We are a learning community, interdisciplinary and intergenerational, about how to be at home with growing older. Quite a challenge. I'm very pleased to welcome Ryan Frederick. Ryan is the co-founder of Smart Living 360. He's a real estate entrepreneur and consultant who develops and advises on better living environments. And Ryan just came out with a new book, Right Place, Right Time. And he undertook the Herculean effort to tackle the question of the right kind of home for the second half of life. Our conversation will be about the choices he talks about, how to make them, and more. So let's jump in. Ryan, again, thank you so much for joining us. Something you talk about in your book is an interesting combination. You talk about three components of age-friendly living, care, home, and hospitality. Can you talk a little bit about what role home plays amongst this age-friendly living components? I want to start off by thanking you and, and those that are here. To answer your question, Susie, part of the premise for this book and part of the credibility I bring is I've been very focused on how do we create great places and whether they're in some cases age restricted, but in other cases just age friendly. And I've been thinking about this for a while, but in the process of writing a book, which by the way, was never part of the master plan. I took the PSAT in high school and the math was fine, but the English suggested I was English as a second language. But uh, in any event, what happened was it made me think pretty deeply about place. And one of the key things about place in the context of healthy aging is a couple of things. First of all, we have to think about place broadly, which I'll come back to in a second. And we also have to understand that place has direct and indirect influence around our healthy aging. So as we think about place, sometimes we think about place in terms of just the four walls that we're around. And, you know, Susie is an architect. She can appreciate how valuable it is to create the physical space and have that work for where we are and match our needs at the time. But I see place as being much broader than that. What neighborhood are we in? What metropolitan area are we in? Are we in urban, suburban, rural environment? What region of the country? What country? You know, almost for an exaggerated example, very sadly, of course, what's happening today in Afghanistan, you might have a beautiful home. That's a really challenging country for anyone to live in today. And so it's important to think about place as this composite 
of different elements. But then the second piece, like I mentioned earlier, it has both direct and indirect pieces. There's the, the notion of, am I in the right physical space? Do I feel a sense of belonging? Any mobility challenges I might have? How do they work in the house I have? In the bathroom, for example, are there fall risks that are there that shouldn't be there? So there's an appropriateness about this, but it also has these really important indirect benefits. Like the right place can get you better socially connected. Often quoted statistic now, people that are regularly lonely, it has the health impact of, of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, for example or purpose. You know, if you're in a place where it helps encourage a greater sense of purpose than yourself, people that can articulate a life that has meaning for them on a daily basis, the odds of them having mild cognitive impairments about two and a half times less than those that don't have an articulated purpose. Are you in a place where it's easier to be physically active, where you can walk every day? For example, does the place you're in fit into your own financial well-being? Some people are in spots where it's more expensive than it should be, or it's a riskier spot financially. And by the way, the research around longevity, only about 30% of your lifespan is linked back to your DNA. A bigger factor is really lifestyle and place. When we think about place, the way I describe it to people today is if you care enough about eating the right foods or exercising every day, play should be at that same level. And I think sometimes we don't necessarily give place that level of respect that it is a core component, foundation, if you will, on our personal strategies for, for longevity and healthy aging. I think that when you talk place, you know, it's the broader term for home. So the apartment, the house, the neighborhood, the city we live in. But part of the issue is how do you even approach a decision as huge? And then also, when is the right time to actually start thinking about this? Where do you start? If we all acknowledge that home plays an important role in our health and well-being, how do we start? It can be overwhelming, Susie. It's funny with this book. So the title is Right Place, Right Time, The Ultimate Guide for Choosing a Home in the Second Half of Life. However, I've been getting feedback from people in their 30s that have picked it up. And, and maybe these are advanced planners, but their perspective is place matters significantly no matter what age you're in. And they're right. You know, it does sculpt these social networks. The right place can push you to healthier lifestyles. It just happens to be given my background. I actually lived in a senior living community for a month. I went to Stanford Business School and had a technology background beforehand and then pivoted into longevity and housing. And as part of that experience, I lived in a community in Atlanta for a month. I couldn't talk my wife into joining me. So she left me solo. I was the only male and only person under 75. So I, I got more than my fair share of unsolicited cookies and so on. But I say that because place matters no matter where you are. However, I like to think once kids, if that's part of your story, once kids are not as dominant in your life, we have three teenagers right now that they're pretty dominant, it seems in our life at times. When they've been launched, you, know, you can focus a bit more on, on your own life and what's the right place. In fact, I just was at a kid's basketball game, our eighth grader, and there's a couple neighbors who are about four years before they'll be empty nesters, and they want to start a book club related to this book because they want to be thinking about how they should think about place really before their kids are even gone. Like, what life do we want to have? And I think it can be overwhelming. Part of the book is envisioning, is taking stock on where your life is. I look at it from five different dimensions, like purpose social connection, physical well-being, financial well-being, and then this 
connection to place. Are you in the right place? One friend of mine that read an early version of the book, he went and grabbed a glass of wine as he was reading it because he wanted to just take a step back and see that we're fortunate to be living longer lives. You know, that's one of the great accomplishments last century is that life expectancy more or less doubled in the world. And today, if you're educated and have resources, people are living longer and longer. In fact, kids today, if they're born in developed countries, over 50% of them are expected to live to at least 100. So this is like a new way life works here in our world. And we can think about it, certainly at, at various stages in life. One of the things I advocate pretty strongly in the book is it's a glass half full opportunity. You know, if we can coincide a longer lifespan with a longer health span, with a longer wealth span, those are high quality years to maybe know our grandkids, maybe our great, great grandkids. I mean, it's exciting, but I do think part of it is, is self-reflecting. And then when you make certain decisions about place or ideas, it can be really valuable to test some of those ideas. If you make a move, for example, a move can be really daunting. I mean, we moved a couple of years ago from Baltimore to Austin and it was daunting for us. When you do make these different moves, you want to be pretty confident that it's the right thing. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is this concept of design thinking. And design thinking is a kind of fancy word for a pretty simple process, which is when you have an idea and a hypothesis, rather than just going all in and doing it, can you test that hypothesis and then test it to see if it really is what you think it is before you make bigger decisions around it. As one example, we live in the suburban area of Austin and there's an acquaintance of mine where their kids had left and they were ready to do the urban Austin thing. And they sold their house and they moved into a condo and they were totally excited about how he could walk to work and eat at the good restaurants. And those things were true, but it turns out they missed their friends. They had a hard time really establishing friends in this new neighborhood. And so they ended up actually then selling their condo, moving back to the neighborhood they were before to reconnect with some of those friendships. That was a costly decision in a number of respects. And they probably could have tested the hypothesis by just renting downtown for maybe a year or less than that to see if what they thought was true would really be true. So that's the key thing in this is doing some tests around ideas you might have to see if those really are the right ideas. You're saying getting started means first assessing the number of things you pointed out, like purpose, social engagement, physical environment, finances, and also making a current assessment, looking ahead, how this might change. And then the second thing is you start testing options. And one of the options for most of us, I would say, is to age in place because that's just the reality. There are not enough senior homes and there are not enough specific communities. So most of us stay in our homes, but you're not a fan of aging in place. Can you talk about this? Why you're not a fan? One of the things that's fun about writing a book is you get to have certain subjects that you want to take a stand on and, and dig into it. And so I do, I have a bit of a rant on aging in place in an early chapter. And I have a couple of reasons for that. One is I hate the term. I think the term is awful. I think it's passive, it makes aging seem like it's something that's happening to you. And then the second piece is it, it seems you're like a statue, you know, in place. And again, nothing about the research or healthy aging suggests that you're supposed to 
be like a statue. So I suggest a different term, like living to me is much more proactive. You're in charge and it has an active nature to it. And then living in community, because a key piece of this, no matter what is whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, we need people, we need social fabric to help us thrive at every stage in life. And so I think this idea of community is dual meaning. It means community with people. It also means the broader community that you're part of. And sometimes when we say aging in place, we get stuck in thinking our home at the time. Whereas sometimes a better option is just a different physical space, but in your same community where you have those social connections. So there's the critique of the term aging in place, but there's also the critique of the strategy. And the strategy of aging in place more or less says, I am going to live in my current home, which is typically a single family house. Not always, but typically it is. And my strategy is to be there no matter what. And, and sometimes that works. Sometimes that works. Rarely does that work under all situations. And so when it ends up happening in that thinking, you tend to underappreciate the risks that happen in life. And more importantly, the opportunities that living in a different place can offer. A classic example with aging in place is that our address may stay the same, but we change and oftentimes the environment around us changes. And so what might be a perfect place in one place in time really can be like an awful place another step in time. And in that thinking, when the idea is to age in place no matter what, it doesn't give you the flexibility to say, you know what, I may have reached a stage now where I don't know my neighbors. I may reach a stage where this is more house than I really ought to be in, in charge of. You may reach a place where you recognize that a lot of your net worth is tied up into your house and that's risky to sell. And there's other ways to diversify your nest eggs. One of the advantages of saying living in community is it allows people to say, hey, I want to stay in the Bay Area because I identify with the Bay Area, but maybe my house isn't the right specific option. There's actually a lot of options. Sometimes we think, it's a single family house or it's senior living. And there's all sorts of options in between and there's more coming. The pandemic has actually accelerated the innovation with the ability for technology to support us to live no matter what environment we wanna live and also to be in situations where health services can come to us. Hopefully one of the accomplishments of the book is to help people understand that Aging in place can work, but oftentimes people don't think through all the risks and implications related to it. There's also an opportunity for more real estate developers and service providers to create more great places, whether they're senior living communities or just other places that are designed for people of all ages. So I think that's a really, a really key piece. What I hear, Ryan, is this importance of reassessing. Like every couple of years, it's really our life, we change, our life circumstances change, our abilities change, and therefore our home needs to change. And this could be, you know, by remodeling the home itself, if this is a decision, but it could also be moving. What I found interesting in your book is that you talk about how the financial aspect sometimes locks people into place. For many people, home is their biggest asset. But sometimes it's not the best investment. And of course, it depends which real estate market you're in, et cetera. But I would love to, to hear a little bit more from you about thinking in this area. 
so my wife and I, we met with our financial advisor recently. I, I'm 46 years old. And he said, you should really plan to live to 100. And I'm like, oh, holy moly. Like, how do you do that? Immediately to my wife, I'm like, we got to cut back on our grocery budget. She wasn't too enthusiastic about that. What ends up happening is when we look over the longer term to live to 100, and some of the uncertainties are related to that, we need to make sure that we're in places where we're thriving, if at all possible, and we're being wise about some of these longer term decisions. So in the book, I talk a little bit about Pittsburgh. My dad's from Pittsburgh. We're Steelers fans. And what's happened is in Pittsburgh itself, it's a thriving area. There's great educational institutions. There's health systems. There's larger technology companies, Google, Uber, others have created jobs. If you drive two or three hours outside of Pittsburgh, it's not doing well. And so about four years ago, we were out there visiting family. We were in Pittsburgh, enjoyed that. And then we drove out and we saw an endless supply of for sale signs. What happened was that environment had changed, right? It had gotten harder. Place had changed. Even if people had changed, place had changed. And so those people for which their home was their big asset, they're stuck. They're stuck. And right now don't have a buyer to take them out of probably their biggest asset. As we age, you have to appreciate that things can happen to your place if you own it. And if a lot of your net worth is tied into that real estate asset and something changes, an earthquake, uh, a fire, certain things insurance can't cover, you may not be diversified for those sort of outcomes. That's one thing. Another thing to think about, which is often overlooked, is if you own your home free and clear, it's great because you're in a less risky situation. However, let's say your house appreciates 5% or 3% or something like that. During normal times, the stock market and other sort of investments are going to outperform your home. And so that may not be a big deal over one year, but over a number of years compounded, you end up getting effectively a lesser nest egg. There's an opportunity cost in your home that you don't get a bill for, doesn't show up, it's not a reminder, but that opportunity cost can be tens of thousands of dollars for many Americans that own their house free and clear. There's risk, but there's also an opportunity cost of those dollars not being invested elsewhere. For the non-finance people, can you just quickly say what opportunity costs are? Thank you. So an example, let's say you, you own your house, say it's half a million dollars. So you have half a million dollars of equity in your home. And let's say your house goes up in value 5% which would be a big number, by the way, in normal environment. So they get effectively $25,000 of incremental value to sell your house. However, in this hypothetical example, let's say you were to go and invest in the stock market or other vehicles, and you get a 10% return on those dollars. Well, that would be $50,000 that you've created. So the opportunity cost is the cost of not doing something else. And, and it's something that a lot of us don't think about as much. So it is something I think that a financial advisor can be really helpful with as part of a longer plan. Again, it doesn't make as big a difference over a year or two, but over five, 10 years, yeah, absolutely. That can make a big difference. The other factor, since we're talking about the financial piece of a house, oftentimes there's just costs of ownership that people overlook beyond just real estate taxes and so on, but just home maintenance and capital expenditure projects and things that you may not really get a return on, those dollars can be significant as well. My argument is your house is not defined only by financial returns at all. Like I said, it has to map to purpose and social connection and a number of different elements, but it is one that does deserve some extra attention. 
Yes, and we all have an emotional connection to our house or our home, which I think is another difficult component. You don't have a relationship to a stock <laughs> or investment in a company that also makes it difficult for people to see home as one of the variables in, in their decision, you know, how they want to grow older and how this can contribute to their well-being. And there's also the famous intention and action gap, where we know that we should do something, but we are not doing it. It feels like for a home, since this is such a big part of our life, this is even a bigger issue than if you don't do your dishes. Susie, I'm so glad you raised that. One elephant in the room is, this is hard stuff. And it's not just hard intellectually is hard emotionally. It takes a lot of courage to say, okay, now's the right time to do something different, particularly if you have a strong emotional connection to your current home. It requires a leap of faith that you can have an emotional connection to a home that's something other than your current house. And I think that's such a such a huge issue. There's another piece though, too, called the U-shaped happiness curve. And I talk a bit about it in the book. It's something that's been globally found to be true by researchers. It shows people in their twenties at a certain level of happiness, and then they go this negative slope pretty precipitously. And then around your like late forties and early fifties, you're in this nadir. I like to think of it being correlated to teenagers in the house. And then it works its way up this is a global phenomenon, this curve. People in their 70s have a higher level of self-reported well-being or happiness than at any point in their life. Some of the thesis behind that is that people have gone on this journey long enough, they know what really matters in life. The things that don't matter, they've blocked off. There's a lot that people have to be grateful for in the way their legacy has played out, particularly those that do live longer like that. And so I think it's easy to understand, I want to hold on to my current house and the memories that are associated with that and me. But if we don't look to and understand that there can be a brighter future through door number two, if we explore it, then it makes it even harder to want to do something different than what we have. That's one of the challenges that in some ways the pandemic has made worse is that we see these awful stories of what happened with people in the wrong place or some of these skilled nursing facilities. And there's research that's been done that people fear skill nursing more than they do death itself. There's actually a lot of places, a lot of different physical environments that can work for people. So you can be excited about another venue if you're really honest with yourself. And if in fact your current house isn't the best place, that gap of what you know you should do and what you do is something we struggle with at all ages. It just happens to be that this place thing is such a big decision that if you get that decision right for a stage that you're in, everything becomes easier. If it's the wrong one, everything's harder. And that's why this one, more than other decisions, is really worth the time and investment to get it right. That's one of the biggest ideas in your book also, that we do look at home as a variable in our decision. Regarding the U-shaped curve, as an older adult, quite a bit older than you, Ryan, I can say that it changes daily. <laughs> And I think many people would agree with this. There's no constant. You are listening to At Home On Air 
We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. So Kim says, both aging in place and living in community are phrases that do not immediately resonate with people who are not in locational crisis. Do you have recommendations to reach people before they are in crisis? It's a great question. And, and frankly, Kim, that's why I wrote the book. I said earlier, I believe many of us are trying to have our lifespan match our health span, match our wealth span. In my view, that's a combination of good fortune and planning. If you're in locational crisis, yeah, it's urgent. You can't be strategic. You've got to move. And I've seen it. I'm sure many of us have seen it where someone falls and it then creates cascading events where it's a fall that leads to a fracture that leads to the ER, leads to rehab. And this reminder that where you are is not the right place. At that point, you can be in a more fragile place to make a really big decision. And so it's hard because it's hard to anticipate where we are in the moment, if we're honest with ourselves, but also what's around the corner. So whether aging in place or living community as terms resonate or not, the big piece is how to get ahead of this. Going back to that self-assessment, we can get a sense of, are we even in the right place at this moment in time? And ideally, we want to be a look around the corner and say, you know what? Maybe it's the right place right now, but maybe it's not the right place two years from now. How do I explore what those options are? I talk a bit about my aunt and uncle. They moved to Wyoming. Amazing house. They had a great view. They don't have kids. And they realized uh, in their late 60s, early 70s, that it was a beautiful view. They loved the outdoors, but they were far away from any health system. And, and their house had stairs and all sorts of challenges. And they realized that they wanted to go back to where they were closer to family. They, in fact, moved to a continuing care retirement community where they were able to move into a cottage early enough to build friendships when they were there. This is about five or six years ago. Now there are some health challenges from my uncle and oh my gosh, they made absolutely the right decision. It struck me as a little bit early at the time, but in retrospect, it was absolutely the right time for them. I'm hopeful, Kim, that this book and some of the content on Smart Living 360 website will help people lean in and understand why these decisions are important and how it can have a big impact on their lives so they can avoid these urgent situations which very often lead to suboptimal outcomes. Part of this is also that we have to be honest with ourselves that things will change. It also depends on your appetite for risk. You know, do you take the risk of staying in your home? Because of course you don't know if you will be mobility impaired or not. You just say, okay, when the time comes, I will make the decision, but I'm not going to leave this home or you think ahead and say, okay, I can look at this home and I can put an elevator in when the time comes, I have the money for it or a ramp. But again, this is my priority. It's a very sensitive decision. I really appreciate you make this front and center. Claire says, one advantage of aging in place is that your social connections are there. It feels like it's more difficult to make new friends as you grow older. So Claire, that's a Great question. And I think part of what's happened here is it presumes a couple of things. One, while that might be true for you, Claire, there are a number of people that actually don't have strong social connections where they are. 
where there becomes a comfort with your existing home or house, but the world around you has changed and effectively your social network has contracted. And my biggest concern, more than fall risks, more than home maintenance and financial diversity concerns, my biggest concern with aging in place is around social isolation and loneliness. That's by far my biggest concern. And that may not be where your situation is, which is awesome. But for many people, that is an issue. Their worlds become smaller. They don't have the social fabric that's there. And it's not a good place objectively. But I think you raise an excellent point because friends are hard to make at any age. We've got three teenagers, like I said, and you know they're little social animals right now. They've got their basketball and their soccer and their choir and their clubs, meeting people all the time. When we moved from Baltimore to Austin, it was easier for them to make friends because of the networks they were part of. As we get older, we have to be more intentional about these friends. And we have to think about how environment can make that easier. I met someone recently here in Austin where they decided to move closer to their kids from Dallas and they bought a house they liked, but they're kicking themselves right now because they're in a neighborhood where they just have very little in common with their neighbors and they're having a harder time building a social network. I think you raise a really important point, Claire, and and part of that is dependent on the circumstances of individuals. Former neighbor here in Austin, she's 85. She teaches yoga lessons in her backyard, you know, $10. My wife's done a number of times. And she has this rich social network with a walking club that they started decades ago. She's got these deep rooted friends that make her situation really a great one all considered. But I think that's unusual. And for her, the choice would be to adapt her home to future needs and think about this rather than maybe moving. So Yasmin asks, besides financial advisors, who else can one consult to help map a plan before locational crisis occurs? So in general, there is an absence right now. In fact, I just talked to Paul Irving. He runs the Milken Institute Center on Aging. Brilliant guy. And he said that when we think about people that can help us with life mapping, how do we think about life mapping over a longer life? Not many of these people exist. There are financial advisors, uh, some of them anyway. There is a field called life care managers. Well, actually, it's a Society of Certified Senior Advisors is what it's called. Uh, there's a website for them, and they tend to be more knowledgeable about these different housing options than necessarily a financial advisor would be. But they also tend to be involved more when there may be care needs around the corner. And sometimes they get a referral fee when you then go to a particular environment. And so that would be something to talk to them about. But that said, a few care advisors have heard about the book or read it, and their feeling is they would love to have all of their clients or pre-clients read something like this so they have a perspective on what the options are and what they might prefer. And so I think that could be a path. You could engage one of them to see what are the options over time before there's a locational crisis and then you can map out, okay, what, what is the right option for me? But my, my hope here with Right Place, Right Time is to add more content on the Smart Living 360 website, different modules for videos and things like this. So there's ways I, I can be helpful for people to navigate some of these options, at least generically, but then ideally apply them to a specific region either you live in or one you want to move to. Many of us live in existing homes and then new homes are being built. So what would you advise a developer? What kind of 
housing should they develop for this sort of new reality of longevity? I am also curious of your ideal community for yourself when you reach this point. I'm pretty passionate about these things. So I'm going to be grabbing some of that passion here because I think one of the mistakes that we're making as a society is for years and still today, we're building too many places that don't recognize that we're part of this new hundred year life. This isn't just people today who are in their sixties and seventies, baby boomers who are living longer. This is a new normal. So we need to stop thinking like the whole world, at least in suburbia, are families with kids and minivans. That's not reality. So the thing that gets me particularly irked, but is also an opportunity, is when we build apartment buildings, for example, you can do well-designed, thoughtful, attractive layouts that incorporate universal design. Every apartment building should have blocking behind the walls for grab bars. Every apartment building should be thoughtful about the tiles in the bathroom and what the levers you use for the faucets and different shelving, even wider doorways and so on. Like there's a number of things we can do in the universal design dimension. These things don't cost much money at all, especially if you do it on the front end. What that allows us to do, it allows people then to live much longer in a continuum in what might be the home they love. They're not forced out because we had a poor design on the front end. And that's particularly true, of course, for new development. Beyond that, you know, we have the World Health Organization, WHO. They have been leading an effort for a number of years now around age-friendly communities. And here in the U.S., it's being led by ARP. So how can we have more instructive conversations with policymakers at the county level and beyond so that we're able to make it easier to think about, well, how should sidewalks operate? How do we make it easier in, in a given environment to make it not only age-friendly, but what's partially endemic in this is we take out this trend, which is we've been segregating people by age. That wasn't always the case. For years, we lived in villages together. But over time, we've created more of these age-restricted environments, which in some cases is the right thing, but it shouldn't be the only option people have. And so if we create better age-friendly environments with the building, the walkability around it, have different services come to us, the role of technology and healthcare delivery, I talk about that in detail in the book, then we're creating places, great places, that allow people to thrive over a longer continuum. So I said I was going to get fired up. I got fired up. I, I hope that there are more public policy people that make that easier, maybe even incentives to say, hey, we're, we're going to make it easier for you to build here if you incorporate these features. If you're a municipality, you're signaling how important it is to have people of all ages. Now, there's a little bit of a twist in California, of course, with Prop 13, because for those who own their homes and the real estate taxes, when you do shift into a different basis, your real estate basis goes up. But I know that there are some counties that have created structures so that your real estate taxes can follow you to your new place. I'm not as current on that right now, living in Austin, Texas, but there are some structural things that make it harder for people to move to what could be a better place. But we can do a lot better by creating better intergenerational environments where we're honest with ourselves that we want people to thrive across the spectrum. And last point on this, we spend $3 trillion in healthcare in our country, more than any other country on a per capita basis. Our outcomes aren't as good as you'd expect when we spend that much. And much of that is 
when people have healthcare conditions and more end of life, if we just made it better for people to stay where they want, people wouldn't have to go to institutional settings. And so that ends up costing both the individual and our healthcare system. So there's a bunch of reasons why these should be created. Part of my work right now is working with developers to create these environments. And part of my hope with the book is to be a little kick in the pants for developers to say we can do better. Yes, thanks for bringing your passion into this, Ryan. And just to build on what you said, luckily, per code, new housing developments have to be accessible. But I think what you are pointing out is going beyond accessibility. It's really universal design and universal design is much more than accessibility. And I think that's where it sort of has to go. The other thing is that Connection is really the most important principle in terms of making a decision about home environments and that new housing developments have to think proactively how to promote community connections, not just within the building, but also with active programs. As a society, we built far too many buildings and not communities. A building can be built and anyone can call it a community. But let's be honest with ourselves. There's plenty of buildings that don't have a sense of belonging, don't have a sense of social connection and that really matters so much. One other point I want to emphasize too is, let's say you decide to move from a single family home, a house, and you move to say an apartment building or even a senior living community. One of the things that happens, you have to be really careful about the financial structure of these communities because you might move in and it might be a certain way, but your rights as a resident can be limited. And those buildings can be bought and sold and new managers come in and they change what happens and the services change. And all this disruption happens in your home. And, and that can be really unsettling because of our capital structure. We have situations where people optimize for financial returns, not necessarily thinking about the impact on social capital. So I do think that places like co-ops where you're an owner in a building, where it's co-housing, there's not-for-profits that own different communities where it's far less likely to be bought and sold and traded. And, and so that's another element when you look at these options, not just is it the right place, right metropolitan area or neighborhood and physical dwelling, is it the right financial structure for you so that you don't find yourself in a position where you thought it was one thing and it ends up being something else? And that can be really unsettling as we get older, that you've made this big commitment and it's not what you thought and, and it may require you know, another change that you weren't expecting. Excellent point. One more thing to think of. I think we got a lot of food for thought. Ryan, thank you so much. For me, the biggest takeaway is that I have to sort of take a step back from my home, so to speak, and look at it in a more analytical way, even though that seems like super hard for me. And I might not be ever ready to do this, but, and also like, you know, who are you in terms of what risks are you willing to take as you move forward? I'm not talking about financial risks, but emotional risks to some extent with your decisions. One thing to add to that, in most cases, it doesn't require a change in place in most cases. It can be making your current place better and your current place can be better with maybe a renovation. But some cases it's as simple as maybe it's redecorating. Maybe it's making an emphasis of hosting people more often for dinner or coffee. Maybe it's saying, hey, I'm gonna volunteer 
for something. In most cases, it's not changing your place, but it's making your place work better for you. I know it can be overwhelming. So to me, it's more thinking about how to think about it, (laughs) creating some type of plan. To me, that has enormous value. And it doesn't necessarily mean, boom, I'm going to make a decision tomorrow. But just thinking about it, understanding the different components. And like I said, with my friend that read an early version of the book, just grab a glass of wine, maybe bottle of wine in some cases, and just allowing your mind to, to go. My hope is that this book and some other content can be helpful in assisting in that journey. There's a two-monthly blog on the Smart Living 360 website, and I'll be having a weekly message here soon. You can sign up for that and even get a download of the first chapter or the introduction if that's interesting to you. So there's other ways to engage that I think would be valuable for people. You gave me a perfect segue because most of us will, you know, stay in our own homes. We have our Aging 360 workshop where we talk about exactly what you just said, how can... We live better in our homes and make them partners in our well-being through often very simple changes. Thank you all. Thank you, Ryan. Absolutely. No, my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home With Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.